If you have your Bible with you, turn with me to Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. Um, so you'll go to uh, the last book in the Old Testament, which is Malachi. And you go back one book from there and, the, and you'll be in Zechariah. We'll be looking at Zechariah chapter 9. And just one verse in Zechariah chapter 9. And it's verse 9. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us through your word and finally through your son. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to see your Son who has revealed himself in your word. Help us to apply that to our lives this morning and each day this week. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Simeon is a very righteous man who is from Jerusalem. And in Luke chapter 2, the story that we often read during the holiday season, during the Christmas season... In Luke chapter 2, verse 50, Simeon, this righteous and devout, this just man, issues an astonishing statement. Simeon says of the Lord, the, the newborn babe whom he holds in his hand, he says, after beholding the Christ child, I have seen your salvation. And our text this morning in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, was written some 500 years prior to the time when Simeon would write, would say what he said in Luke chapter 2. And yet, Zechariah, 500 years prior to Simeon, will say the same thing and point us to the same person, the same salvation as Simeon beheld. As Simeon says, I have seen your salvation, Zechariah looks into the future and says, there is the salvation of the Lord. Let me show you the salvation that comes from the Lord. And he says in verse 9, just a few uh, sentences down, he says, He is just and endowed with salvation. That is to say that Jesus, the one who is coming, the Messiah, the Christ child, is salvation. He is dripping with salvation. Literally, it is to say that he, is, he, is, he, he will pour out a fountain of salvation. And we all know the hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood. Zechariah points us to the one who is the fountain of our salvation, namely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Zechariah is unmistakably and unquestionably pointing us to Jesus. Years before Jesus was ever even born to the Virgin Mary in a borrowed manger. Calvin in his commentary on Zechariah 9 verse 9 says this, Inasmuch then in Zechariah's time, as things were as yet in a decayed state among the Jews, Zechariah here testifies that God had not in vain formally spoken so often by his servants concerning the advent of the Redeemer, but that a firm hope was to be entertained until the prophecies were in due time fulfilled. And Calvin saw what I see in this text, that Jesus cannot be missed. Jesus is in every Scripture. In every book, in every chapter, in every paragraph, in every line, in every word, in every jot and tittle of all of Scripture from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, Jesus is to be found there. 
If we were to sum up all of Scripture in one simple phrase, it might well be that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And so as we celebrate the coming of Christ and the incarnation of our Lord during this holiday season, during this Christmas season, we should not leave our celebration there. But our celebration of the Christ child should be something that we celebrate every day and every Sunday, every Lord's Day that we gather. We should celebrate that Christ has come and that He has done for us what no one else could do for us. It's my regular practice to preach verse by verse or word by word through a text. But this morning, I want to preach from several different texts. And I want Zechariah 9 verse 9 to kind of serve as a launching pad to send us throughout all of Scripture. And I want to show you some of the prophecies that were made in the Old Testament and how specific and exact they were. And then just a few of those, how God fulfilled them in Christ. It said that Jesus fulfilled, I believe it was 108 prophecies out of around 300 that were guaranteed to be about the Messiah. Some of those prophecies are yet to be fulfilled. Some of those seem like they could have been fulfilled by Christ, but there could be evidence that it might have been fulfilled by another. So they've taken those out and said that there are 108 that are unquestionably and undeniably fulfilled by Christ. There is no doubt about it, no question about it whatsoever that Jesus was the Messiah, according to those 108. And if we were to just take a few of these that we look at this morning, just a few of these prophecies that were made in the Old Testament and look at how exactly they were fulfilled by Christ in the New Testament. It would be like taking silver dollar coins and stacking them two feet high across all of Texas. That would be the probability of Christ fulfilling just one of these. And yet He's fulfilled them all. And so if you ever have any doubt in your mind that Jesus is who He says He is, Just go back through the Old Testament. There are teachers today who say that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament, that the Old Testament is just for back then, that we don't need that anymore. But people who say that are desperately missing so much of Scripture because the Old Testament serves to reveal Christ in the New Testament. And so I want to look in our first point at some irrefutable proof. Some irrefutable proof. Jacob, you may remember, was spoken of as being chosen by God. He was the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac. Abraham, you will well remember, was commanded in Genesis chapter 22 to sacrifice his own son. Abraham was commanded by the Lord to sacrifice Isaac. And Abraham and his wife Sarah had prayed desperately for the Lord to give them a child. And it wasn't uh, until in their old age that the Lord blessed them with a child. And then the Lord came to them and commanded Abraham to sacrifice his only child. To sacrifice Isaac, which is in and of itself a picture of Christ. Because we're told in John chapter 3 verse 16 that the Father gave His only begotten Son. And here the Lord, the Father, the God of Abraham and Sarah came to Abraham after giving them a son. After they had prayed for it for years, for decades. And says, give us, give me your only son. The Lord was testing Abraham. And so when Abraham was faithful to, the God, to, to God's test, and he went up to the mountain, the very same mountain, by the way, which 
hundreds of years later, would be the mountain upon which Christ was crucified. It was then Mount Calvary. Abraham would take Isaac there and lay him down upon the altar. And as he raises the knife to take the life of his own son as a sacrifice in obedience to the Lord, he hears the Lord say, stop. Don't do that, but look off into the thicket. And Abraham turns his eyes away from his son and looks to the thicket and sees a ram there. And Jacob was the grandson of Abraham and the son of Isaac. Jacob was the son of the one who was to be a sacrifice and he would serve as a foreshadow of the true sacrifice who was to come. But it's interesting to note where Jacob and Rachel came from. Jacob and Rachel, we see throughout the book of Genesis, came from a place called Bethlehem. Jacob, the one who was chosen by God. Jacob, the one who was the son of the one who would be a sacrifice, comes from Bethlehem. And Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Jesus would later refer to himself in John chapter 6, verses 33 through 35, as the bread of life. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst. Jesus affirms his deity and his messianic identity by pointing us backward to his family lineage. He came from a family who was from the house of bread. He came from a family, from his family lineage, which was from Bethlehem, from the house of bread. And he himself says, I am the bread of life. Not only does his lineage trace back to Bethlehem, but turn with me to Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. It says, But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. And the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. We all know that Jesus was born to a carpenter and to Mary who was probably at that time around 16 years of age. He was born to a poor family in a poor town called Nazareth in a poor country called Bethlehem and in a poor neighborhood called Ephrathah. Jesus was born into poverty. Jesus, the God of all eternity, the one who existed before anything else, the one who according to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, was the very power, the very word by which the Father created all that existed. This God humbled Himself and came down into a manger. And He came to a poor family. And that's what it says in Micah chapter 5. Beginning in verse 2, it says that Bethlehem is a small place. Bethlehem is a poor place. Bethlehem was a place that was looked down upon. Bethlehem was a place of dirtiness. A place where people wouldn't even want to go in there and serve them.
And yet Jesus came from exactly that place. He came from the place where nobody comes from. He came from the place where certainly no king had ever come from. The coming of our Lord is prophesied with very specific and laser-focused details. And that's what he does in Micah chapter 5. He tells us that this one will come who has existed from all eternity. And that he will come from Bethlehem. There's a doctrine that was deemed as heresy during the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And it's known as Arianism. It teaches that Jesus was created. It teaches that Jesus was not pre-existent to all of eternity or to the rest of creation, but that He Himself was a created being. This denies the coexistence and consubstantiality of Jesus or the reality that Jesus is God. The reality that Jesus has the very same attributes as God. But this is completely heretical teaching. It's false teaching because we're told there in Micah that the, the Lord, the, the God who has existed from all of eternity will come from Bethlehem. That He who has already existed will come in the form of a child. That He will come as truly God and truly man. And He will come from this place called Bethlehem. But it doesn't just say Bethlehem. It says Bethlehem Ephrathah. And the word Ephrathah literally means land of fruit. He has come from the house of bread and from the land of fruit. It is as though the Lord, through the prophets, told us not only what city and county and country the Lord would be born in, but that He tells us the exact neighborhood that He will be born in. And that neighborhood, you could imagine that whatever, name you, whatever neighborhood you might live in, it might be Friendly Acres neighborhood, or it might be Niffley neighborhood, or whatever neighborhood it might be, but it's within the county. We live in Niffley. We live within the larger context of Adair County. And we live in Kentucky. It's as though God is saying He's going to be born in this place and then in this place within that place and within this place within that place. And that's what Ephra thought. It is literally the neighborhood where Jesus is born. And it's the land of fruit. And in John chapter 15, Jesus speaks of bearing fruit in the Lord. He tells us that those who are truly redeemed and made new will be connected to Him. And our connection to Him will, will cause us to bear much fruit. And why is that? It's because He refers to Himself there in John 15 as the true vine. Again, Jesus is said to have come from the land of fruitfulness or the land of fruit. And He is the true vine. Do you see that? In our verse, going back to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, it said that the Lord will come into the city on a colt. At the end of Zechariah 9, verse 9, it says, He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is speaking not in reference to His incarnation, but in reference to His triumphal entry into the place of Jerusalem, where He would go to be on trial and He would be crucified there upon Jerusalem's mount. And if you know a little bit about Jerusalem's geography, Jerusalem is raised up higher than any of the other surrounding areas around it. So it's already up on a mountain. And then Golgotha or Calvary is up on a mountain on top of Jerusalem. 
And so it, it was right outside of the city gate, right outside where everybody who came in and out of the city would see what took place. And Jesus would come in on a colt knowing full well that He would soon be upon that mountain. And He came in anyway. In Mark chapter 11, verses 1-10, through 10, it says, As they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany near the Mount of Olives, He sent two of His disciples and said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied there, or a donkey, on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? You say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it to you. Send it back here. They went away and found a colt tied at the door, outside in the street, and they untied it. Some of the bystanders were saying to them, why are you doing, what are you doing untying the colt? They spoke to them just as Jesus had told them, and they gave them permission. They brought the colt to Jesus and put their coats on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their coats in the road, and others spread leafy branches, which they had cut from the fields. Those who had went in front and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is, he, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. First, we should note that the prophecy was specific as to what animal he would ride. If someone wanted to disprove the Bible, it wouldn't be very hard to do if there were any, if there were any disproving that could take place. The Bible is very specific. It says that he'll ride in on a donkey. And if he hadn't ridden in on a donkey, then it could have been proven false. It could have been proven according to the law in Deuteronomy chapter 18, which says that even if there's one false prophecy, ignore it all. But the prophecy is specific and the fulfillment of it is specific. Down to the very finest of details. But second, we should note that the donkey meant two things. First, it meant royalty. For someone to ride on a donkey was, according to the dictionary of Bible imagery, a sign of royalty and kingship. Biblical archaeology has been a key factor in proving that donkeys were ridden by those of royal descent. As people have excavated the land around Jerusalem, they found that there are bones of donkeys near and around bones and tombs of kings and royalty. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the fact that Jesus rode in on a donkey, and not only a donkey, but a donkey that had never been ridden on, it was pure, shows that He is not only King, but that He is the pure and perfect King. That He is the King of kings. That He is the Lord of lords. That this Jesus is who He claims to be. The Son of God. And secondly, to ride in on a donkey was a symbol of peace. Kings would often ride on donkeys into war. And they would do that. They would ride in on a donkey rather than on a horse into war if they were showing that they were bringing peace. If they were showing that they had with them or they carried with them a treatise of peace. And Jesus came, according to Luke 19 verse 10, to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus did this by humbling Himself as a servant. He came to serve and not to be served. He came to die. He came to bring peace. 
And as we look at the cross at Calvary, the old rugged cross, where the dearest and best laid himself down for us, we see the horror of the cross. I imagine the sound of the hammer hitting the nails as the nails drove into his feet. I imagine the crying out of our Lord as he cried out his seven statements upon the cross. I imagine as, as the storm brews in the background and the rains begin to fall down and darkness fall, falls over the face of the earth, how horrifying it must have been to see the blood of Christ the blood of the king being poured down. And to stand there in front of it and to know what each and every one of us can say. That it is I who put him there. How horrifying that must have been. But then at the same time, we know that that's not the end of the story. That that's just the beginning. That it is there that Christ has purchased peace for us. It is there that Christ has done all that is required to make us new. And that we must only repent and believe in Him to have that applied to us. Jesus is the Messiah. And there is irrefutable proof of it. But Jesus didn't come just to come hang out. He didn't come here because he didn't have anything else better to do. He didn't come here because he got tired of seeing the gold streets and because he got tired of all the angels singing praises to him for all of eternity. He didn't come here just to see how awesome we were. He came here for a purpose. He came here for our second point. He came here to accomplish important plans. In Isaiah 53, if you would turn with me there. Isaiah chapter 53 in verses 10 and 11 we see this but the Lord was pleased to crush him having put him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering he would see his offspring he would prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand as a result of the anguish of his soul he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. This passage is controversial because it says in verse 10 that the Lord was pleased to crush his own son. A lot of atheists and naysayers to the word of God say, well, how is it that the God of the universe can be loving and yet be pleased by crushing his own son? How is it that it pleased the Lord to crush His own Son, to forsake His own Son? In Psalm 22, we see the words that Jesus cries out upon the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We see that Christ is forsaken by the Father. He is sent to the grave. How is it loving of God to crush His Son? And here's the answer. It's because the pleasure of God was not found in the death of His Son, but it was found in the deliverance 
of His sons and daughters. It is not as though God enjoyed seeing His Son die upon that tree. But we live in a world of cause and effects. The cause was the lamb's slaughter. And the effect is our salvation. Had Christ not gone to the cross, there would be no such thing as salvation. We could never earn our way into heaven. We can never be good enough. We can never work our way out of our sin. And because of this, it is not as though God is a cosmic child abuser, which is a phrase that I've heard. It's not as though God takes delight in suffering. And especially in the suffering of His own Son. But He is the Savior who came to fulfill His mission. And that mission was saving His people from sin. In Jeremiah 23, verses 1-6, through 6, the Lord through the prophet Jeremiah gives us hope. Jeremiah, as we noted a couple of weeks ago, when preaching from Lamentations chapter 3, is known as the weeping prophet. This was because he lived in a day of deep and dark rebellion. In Jeremiah's day, and in Zechariah's day, if you read through the book of Zechariah, we see that the people in their day went their own way. The people in their day denied God. They hated God's law. They desired to do whatever they wanted in regards to sexuality. They walked away from the old paths of righteousness. They followed false gods, seeking to worship anything and everything that would bring them selfish satisfaction. And doesn't this sound exactly like our day? We live in a generation that thinks we have it all figured out. We live in a generation that does everything to deny the existence of God, thinking that as long as I deny that God exists, I can get away from following His law. We live in a day when God's law is disdained and disregarded. We live in a day when sexual impurity and confusion runs rampant and is celebrated. We live in a day that considers the old ways as just that, old and outdated. We live in a day when everybody is out for one thing, themselves. But in Jeremiah chapter 23, we're told that a Messiah will come. In Zechariah chapter 9, says the same thing, a Messiah will come. Go back with me to Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 and look at what the first portion of that verse says. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout and triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, This is language that says, pay attention. Don't miss what I'm about to say here. If you've fallen asleep somewhere in the back pew, wake up now because what I'm saying now is important. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your King is coming. I know that things are looking bad right now. I know that things are about as bad as they could be. I know that everybody is going their own way. I know that we are sinful. I know that everybody has turned, turned aside to their own way as we saw in Psalm 53 and in Psalm 14. God has looked down the corridor of time to see if anybody would choose Him. And no one does because everybody wants to do what they want. I know that, God says. I know how desperately sinful everyone is. But listen. Behold, your King is coming. Rejoice greatly. Shout 
and triumph. Hope is coming. Christ came to be the Messiah. Christ came to be the King. Christ came to give us something to rejoice about. I'm reminded of the old hymn, and I know I've said this before, that Jesus paid it all. But that opening line says, I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Are you aware this morning of your own weakness? Are you aware of your own frailty, of your own desperate need for salvation? And a salvation message is not just for those who have never been saved. A salvation message message and a reminder that Christ has come is for those who have been saved for decades but have grown cold. Or for those who have been saved for decades and have lost a sense of awe at what God has done. And we're all at risk of doing that. We're all at risk of becoming cold. But every page of Scripture serves to point us to Christ. And Jesus is glorious and beautiful as He reveals Himself to us. Elder D.J. Ward put it this way. He said, I contend this morning that the death of Jesus Christ was not any attempt. It was an accomplishment. Brothers and sisters, when one accomplishes something, it means that somewhere they had to have an assignment. What was the assignment? His name shall be called Jesus, for He shall save. Not attempt to save, not try to save, not hope to save, not want to save, but He shall save His people from their sin. He says, is that right? If He did not accomplish it, then we are here in vain. If He did not accomplish this, we are all going to hell. But if He did do it, He doesn't need your best. And your works need not speak for you. If He did do it, you can leave here rejoicing that your sins are now under the blood and that He stands as your substitute, your mediator before God this morning. Can I close this morning just by asking you, Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? Do you believe that Jesus has come? Do you believe that He accomplished what He came to do? Do you believe that His work, if you are in Christ today, has been applied to you? And that no one and nothing can take that from you? Do you believe this morning that if you do not know Him into salvation, you can know Him today? Christmas is about the coming of Christ, but it is also about the crucifixion of Christ. And if He died without being the right and proper Messiah, if He died without being the fulfillment of all these prophecies, just a handful of them that we've looked at this morning, then He died in vain. He died without purpose. He died without any point. But beloved, I'm here to leave you with one thing this morning. Our Lord, the man Jesus Christ, who was and is and will be forevermore, is the Son of God, God incarnate, God with us. And He has accomplished what He has set out to do.
We have much to rejoice about today. We can celebrate for what Christ has done. And I pray that you would do that today and throughout this Christmas season. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I ask that you would help us today to be in awe of what you have done. Remind us of the reality that you are the God who makes the impossible possible. That you are the God who can do all things. That you are the God who does whatever you please. But not that just, just that you are the God who can do whatever you please. But that you are the God who does whatever you please. As it says in Psalm 135 verse 6. Remind us that you were pleased to save us. And that you have done that in Christ. Help us to remember what you've done for us. Throughout this season. In Christ's name, amen.